Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Pal, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I got to say, um, I'm really excited for today's conversation because uh, Appendage was one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. Um, it's I, I'm a huge horror guy and I love beyond horror. I love really weird horror. So uh, obviously this movie checks the box. So before we dive into the movie, though, I do want to get to know you a little bit. Take me back to the the first time that you ever watched a movie and there was something inside of you that clicked and said, I want to do this. All right. There's two. The first Brendan Fraser mummy movie of all of the things I think any film person could say, maybe that's not like the most like cool answer. <laughs> you know, I was a uh, yeah, I, I remember watching that as a kid and being like, oh, man, how did they? how did they make the mummy happen? Like, what were the, like, what was the effects process? I was way more interested in like how the hell they got the thing to move and talk and what the the prosthetics were than I was, you know, like being scared of it. Cause I was however young I was at the time. Right. Um, and then the second one was the first Matrix movie. Mm. Just all of it just made me be like, I got to be a part of that somehow. The, the first mummy movie was a huge piece for me. They got me interested in filmmaking. Um, and it's funny because the last guest I had on talked about Stephen Summers too. So you talked about like the mummy. We talked about like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, like that weird late nineties, early two thousands kind of like trying to revisit these universal horror monsters. But yeah. I remember watching the original mummy bonus features, like as much as the movie. So I'd watch like the artists, like we're taking the texture of this beef jerky and we're adding it to the mummy to give him texture. And like, here's how we do all this. And it was, it was super fascinating. And it's one of the things I miss now going to streaming is like some of those rich bonus features and like really cool in-depth documentaries that were like little micro film schools just don't exist anymore. Um, It's, it's kind of a, kind of a big loss. You know, watching that and being fascinated was it something that turned quickly into a hobby? Was it something that in your young mind, you thought this is a career that I could actually do? Or like, was it something that kind of was just, this is really interesting. And I also need to pursue becoming a doctor. No, I didn't. I didn't go full doctor. I, I was, it was definitely something that developed as a hobby. I mean, made, you know, movies with friends. I would steal my parents' camera on vacations and film my own stuff instead of what they were trying to use it for. But I know I kind of I jumped around a little bit. I I was into music for a long time. I was, a, I was in a couple bands. Both of them came with me to college. And I was like, ah, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. Uh, and actually, before that, uh, I was really into video game design. And so I was, I was learning coding and how to 3D model and, and uh, 3D paint things. And then I, you know, jumped back into to music and Ken kept going back and forth and both bands broke up while I was in film school. Mm. Actually, I got into film school at USC and I was considering switching to the music program. And then literally at the same time, both of them just like exploded. And it was wow. the sa- same semester that the film classes are actually starting because the first two years of USC, you basically just do gen ed. And so yeah. I was like, ah, yeah, what am I doing here? I'm going to play music. This is going to be great. Um, And so no, 
everything kind of uh, serendipitously blew up and led me right to this career. Retroactively, do you feel like that's the best thing that could have happened? Or do you ever go, what if they had stuck together and we'd kept going? You know, like, how do, how do you feel about it now looking back? No, I think this was definitely the right route. I mean, I was still so into making weird shorts and things with my friends, even while I was playing music, that it was always a part of my life, even mm. when I was in focus on something else. So yeah. this was the right route. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had an interest, obviously, in like, visual effects and just visuals in general, like whether video game design, whether, you know, watching effects breakdown of the, you know, the mummy and wondering how they did that. Um, was there any part of you that was like curious about the VFX side or was it just, you know, it's cinematography, I think is the route to go. Um, and if it was the latter, like what were some of the biggest inspirations you started watching a lot to kind of like, I guess, glean from their, their work and their filmographies? No, I, I definitely had a minute where I got really into uh, into special effects makeup and also just green screen visual effects in general. And so my my application to Chapman was actually like a zombie film. I did all the zombie makeup and um, I, I kept going with that. My my two major um, films at USC were both grindhouse horror movies. And so I was doing blood and, and applications, you know, uh, on all that. Um but no, I, I think I just always have loved operating a camera. It was yeah. it was definitely that. And and there's a there's a moment when you get to film school and you know you're the kid from your high school that like maybe there were three mm -hmm. others who like who like movies, but everyone shows up and you're in a room with three hundred people who are all like, we're all gonna be directors. And you're like, right. I don't know about that. I don't think yeah. that's how it, I don't think that's how it works. And so yeah. um I got I just, you know, I picked up a camera and I started to shoot for a lot of those people that I was meeting and I realized that this was something I could really, yeah. I could really do. And I was, I was, I think pretty good at, at the time. And I was able to kind of pick up and then start working with um a lot of people on instead of, you know, going lone wolf, I, I will be an auteur director. It just didn't seem like the right path for me. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I read the book, uh, what they don't teach you in film school. And it opens with the story of like a classroom of like, I think it was 300 students and it's like, how many of you want to be a director? And like all 300 raise their hands. And then they say, okay, all of you put your hands down except for one. And the teacher goes like, and that's if you're lucky, you know, and it was yeah. kind of like this big reality, you know, wake up call. Um, you know, looking back, um, obviously film school is full of hopefuls that, you know, are going there to launch themselves into the industry. Um, for some, it works really well. For some, it just becomes a very expensive uh, experience. And then they don't get any benefit out of it. For you now looking back, do you think film school is a necessity for people who are trying to get into the film industry? Um, and would you do it again if you were going back in time? I, I would. I've I've thought about this. Like, could I have taken the tuition money, just bought like an early model Alexa and just started shooting maybe. Right. But for earlier on, I'm I'm better now, but earlier on, I was not a very social person. I was not good at meeting people and mm -hmm. not good at networking. And so going, having to go somewhere where they're like network, <laughs> they like yeah. push you into a room right. with students and they're like, these people will work with you forever. Stay friends with them. Like that was what was helpful for me. I learned way more, uh, sorry, USC on set than I did like uh, in terms of camera operation lighting. I just, right. you know, when you're forced to do it practically and like, if you don't do it well, you're not going to get another job. You just start to pick things up really, you know, quickly. Um, but no, going there, I mean, Anna, I'm, uh, who directed, uh, appendage I met at USC, we co-DP'd oh. a thesis. Yeah. We co-DP'd a thesis together. 
uh, before she started directing more. Uh, Michelle Patterson, our PD, was also at USC. Nick Chuba, our composer on Appendage, was uh, in a band that my band used to play with. And so a lot of the Appendage uh, cast and crew. Oh, and then some of our EPs. Uh, Jenna Cavell was also a USC. Um, like it's just oh, Appendage it's an is alumni a very project. Yeah. Stacked alumni project. Yeah. Um, I know I'm missing one person who also went, and I'm sorry to whoever that is. But, um, you know, it was. It was helpful for that alone. I one of my closest friends, um, who I've I've actually I've made two movies with now. He was a screenwriter there. I'm producing a script for another friend of mine who's a screenwriter there. We were all on the same floor freshman year. Our editor was also on our same floor freshman year. It's wild how many people stuck together leaving there. So I can't I can't say it wasn't worth it. Maybe yeah. it's not what I thought I was going to get out of it. Right. But yeah, it's what I needed. <laughs> yeah, so. that's incredible. I didn't realize what a connection there was between everybody um, on this project. Yeah. Um, take me into that. I know we could spend a lot of time on the the post-film school to going to the feature realm, um, but I'm curious stepping into this project specifically, because I'm fascinated by, I mean, I'm fascinated by this Huluween thing that Hulu's been doing. And Hulu's actually put out a lot of really cool just one-off horror projects over the last couple of years. No and one like, will save you recently. No one will save you is so fun. I've got to see that. I've, I've, I've heard it's really good. I, I really like the one they did. Uh, I forget what they called them. They didn't call them Halloween. There was like a different series of shorts they did with Blumhouse, but there was one called I'm just fucking with you. And like, oh, I, I really, really love that movie. Um, there's been a couple. It's just like these really cool, interesting, like almost Tales from the Crypt-esque shorts, you know, and then, or not shorts, features. Um, and yeah, Appendage is a super cool project. Like, how did you get involved with it? Um, and did you realize how many people you knew were connected to it stepping into the project? Yeah, so uh, on top of all those crazy connections, um, our producer and editor, Alex Familian, uh, I actually went to high school with him. And oh, we wow. took we took film classes at high school together. Um, and so, you know, after that, I actually connected with Anna. And um, it just, you know, it it was one of those things where I, we kind of knew going in because we did the short together. And so this, this crew has been working, Anna, Alex, and I have done three or four since we graduated together in different capacities. Sometimes Alex is directing, sometimes Anna's directing. Um, and Michelle has done a lot of PD for Anna since then. Michelle PD, the thesis that I gaffed in college as well. So it was just sort of this crew that's moved up together since then. And so when we when we got to it, it was really nice to finally do a, a long-form project together. Yeah, that's awesome. Were you So you were in it from ground up? Yeah, I did the short with Anna. Um, and, you know, there are definitely stylistic differences between the two, but it was, uh, no, it was, it was, it was even fun on the short, you know? Right. Well, I, I tied, tied to resources. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I'm curious, like coming into this, cause it's such a, I feel bad for whoever had to cut the trailer for the movie because it's not, it's, it's like, a, I, I watched the trailer and then watched the movie and was like, I love the movie. I love the trailer. I don't know how you properly represent the movie in its entirety with the trailer. Cause it's very bizarre. It is very tales yeah. from the crypt. I kept going back to that in my mind. I was like, this is like a top tier tales from the crypt episode um, for the approach of it. Like what were some of the inspirations, like as you're putting together lookbooks for this and like starting to decide what the look of it is. Cause there's parts that feel very, 
Evil Dead. There's parts that feel very like, you know, Rosemary's Baby-esque. There's parts, you know, there's there's parts that feel very goofy and then parts that are decidedly not goofy. Like, how did you start laying out like this is the visual style of this film? Yeah, I mean, we jumped around um, with the references just because of that reason. It was really, you know, how do you nail down one movie that represents the look of this one? And so we jumped all over the place. I mean, we had, uh, let's see, seven, uh, don't breathe black Mm. swan fight club. Uh, I'm a big fan of the evil dead 2013 film. I, Aaron Morton who shot shot that's like one of my favorite, you know, modern DPs. He did it. No one will save you. That's why I was like, I had Mm. to see it. But, um, so, um, the, you know, we had all those. And then on top of that, we had the fly and it was, you know, the, just a crazy spread of films. And I can't say that this movie huh. looks like any of them. And then on top of that, there was this sort of weird, uh, we've been calling it like Guillermo del Toro, almost like storybook or fairy tale style to some of the scenes. Mm-hmm. There's like this sort of magical realism. So like the first scene, she pricks her finger on the needle or the ending sequence in the attic where it has this like opening and closing a storybook kind of vibe to it. Right. Which, you know, I think came about because with between the practical effects and sort of the ridiculous, uh, but still important message of it all. That's kind of a fairy tale thing. It's like, how can we tell someone a a story that makes them change their lives with like the most fantastical elements possible. And so that's, I think it kind of was sort of born there, but you know, we look to, a lot of early Fincher just for how mm. grounded that stuff was like a lot, you know, like seven very realistic, realistically lit movie in a lot of right. ways. Like you can understand where all the lights are coming from. Yes, you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's no, there's nothing ridiculous and out of place happening in it. And we, we knew we wanted that because of how much between the drama and the comedy, we didn't want to take away too much from people's attention to what was actually going on with Hannah. And right. so Tried to keep it grounded, but yeah, like you said, it's a really ridiculous batshit movie. And so we did want to get to lean into that. We developed a kind of, um, like a, a, somewhere between a color story and color rules, where based on all of our movies, we kind of slimmed it down to three tones we thought fit the film. And so there was this gold orange light that we used for when Hannah was mostly up in her own brain, manic, anxious, and it was all her own fault. We had then this green tone that was when the appendage was sort of influencing her Hmm. and then blue became a color that worked its way into the pd and and the color correction and the lighting passes were like when it was either a comfort zone or her friends blue becomes becomes a more prevalent color Hmm. and so you kind of go back and track it you'll see you know the bar scene all blue it's the only time she's alone with esther in the whole movie uh before shit goes wrong and then the ending of the movie she's in blue we we white balanced upstairs so the attic the the like daylight skipping off the floorboards was colder and so it actually tied into the Mm. blue friendship vibes a little things like that where we tried to get it in when we could um never forced it where it felt weird like we didn't have a neon blue light outside in the middle of the day when she's talking to a friend but you know just little ways to try and clue people into what was going on with hannah as things went and those were all tones you know the gold from seven has some of the best interior warm yellow golds you can find uh but you also look at things like pan's labyrinth he has those too like mm-hmm. he does that sort of orange green mix a lot of the time and we definitely wanted to integrate that into that storybook kind of feeling um yeah, yeah. and then you got the fly you know like very different right. from everything our movie looks nothing like the fly but it feels the same in some right. ways and where it's like you know same on the surface can't be silly gross 
but has a lot of existential meaning behind mm. it. And that was sort of a movie Anna kept coming back to. It's like, yeah, we have to be silly, but also this does mean something to to her, to to Hadley, to like everyone portraying that the anxiety taking over your life element of the of the yeah. movie. Yeah, I didn't think of The Fly at all, which is kind of crazy because there's so much similarity. Not again, I wouldn't even say maybe in tone. It's one of those things where watching Appendage, I was going, it it made me actively nervous, like for the first third of the movie, because I was like, this movie's spinning a lot of plates tonally. And then, like, and I've seen, and I mentioned Tales from the Crypt. The worst Tales from the Crypt episodes are where they do that. And then like all those plates start falling throughout the episode. And you're like, what what on earth? Or they go like so far. Like I've seen a lot of movies that try to do that some something akin to the comedic tone of this film, but then it goes yeah. too far where you lose any horror. Or they go, they try to do a comedy horror, but then it's like, well, there's like we wasted time with comedy in the beginning to do all horror for the right, re- you know. And yeah. this movie, I feel like just visually, like jumping from the studio for the, the design studio to the look of say the bar to the grimy, like where I saw evil dead the most was when she's got the creature locked up and there's that little streak of gold light and it's kind of banging against it. I was like, that's the, that's the door in evil dead. That's like kind of yeah. bumping up and down. Um, yeah. But it balances those tones really, really well um, for you. Was there any, were there any moments of panic going like, did I push this one piece too far? Like, are we, should I have tried to just do consistent and safe for some of this? Like, did you, cause it is, it's a crazy, just batshit movie. Um, and I have to imagine there was some parts where you're like, is this going to cut together? <laughs> like these two kind of vibes. I would have been more worried if Anna and I hadn't worked together so much and she wasn't so on it with the tone. I would say more than anything, she trusted me with a lot of the lighting choices and a lot of, you know, we, we, we have a very strong, like almost a uh, hive mindy connection when it comes to like lens selection. And so w- wasn't worried about that, but she did keep bringing up tone. And so she was really on it and that kept me pretty honest about it. Um, there were like, you know, we, okay. Yeah. There's, there's a couple shots where we took the color story really far, like the bar. Um, there's a moment in the montage before uh, what there's just like the, mo- the montage in the middle when she learned she can sedate the thing. And like, she's, She's sewing a dress and we pushed her like red or orange tone to like straight up red. She's sewing into like a, like it's a red frame in the middle of the film. It's like her sewing alone in her room, the windows are orange and it's glowing red. I'm like, this is the most surreal we've probably gone. Right. We reasoned it with, well, that would be the color of morning light coming in. So like, at least that's probably okay. But like her overhead light just goes straight red. And that was to be like, she's at the peak of losing her shit. And I think it completely works in context of the montage because the montage builds. It's like, you know, you have a little leeway when you're dealing with sedating a little like smash Tootsie Roll looking monster fucker. Like it's, you know, if you do anything a little silly, like people are already in the mindset that this is a little silly. Uh, So we tried to limit our going crazy moments to when the movie as a whole was going crazy. A lot of the scenes, like if I had tried to pull that red light and it was the opening scene she's sewing, it would have been ridiculous. So you know, tracking how seriously, you know, the movie is taking itself at the time and where Hannah's at and sort of what Anna wants out of each scene very much helped me keep things on track. Right. Right. Mostly. Maybe someone will disagree because, you know, there's a couple choices in there, but 
Right. Well, you mentioned um, lens selection, which I wanted to talk about because there's a lot of like just really wide shots within the movie. Um, so, you know, I really like the shots in the design studio. And then, you know, near the end, which felt very akin to like Evil Dead Rise or like movie, movies like that when her friend's coming and looking up at the building, you know, and there's a super cool, almost fish-eyed shots. Um, yeah. But in terms of lens selection, like what were you going for in terms of, because there's, I mean, pretty much everything is shot very wide, like even effects, like, and I, it's one thing I appreciated again about the movie is that the effects aren't hidden, like, mm-hmm. and they do play into like, you know, obviously like, especially the first creature, like it, it's a, it's a puppet, like we're watching it and we're going like, this is kind of a fun, silly, you know, creature in the movie is like, here it is. Like, we're showing you, we're not hiding this. We're trying to make it look like something else. Like, this is it. Um, you know, what was the process picking out the look and style as far as like lenses went for the movie? Sure. Uh, we had, again, kind of like our guidelines for the color. We, we decided early on a few guidelines for, you know, it's when you're dealing with a selection lens, it's like 32, 40, 50, mm-hmm. you know, like they're very, they're, they're very close. Um, as you go, you know, between the 40 and the 50, but like, right they do still have a different feeling. You still like the, you know, the 50 feels dead neutral to your eye. Most of the time, once it's on a like the sensor that we had mm-hmm. and that 40 adds just like just a little bit of extra curvature. And it's why I tend to like it a little bit more. I feel like it's a little bit more 3d, but you can misuse that lens easily. Like there are ways or like, especially as you get wider and wider too, you know, scenes where it's supposed to be her talking to a friend, you get too close on something too wide and it feels really, fucking weird and so right. we knew that there was a limit and we needed to decide because of the tone jumping around we needed to make it really clear to people watching it like what how she felt about the people she was in each scene with and so uh long like the 50 was typically what we used when she was talking to her friends and then i would like i'd be at a pretty comfortable over the shoulder medium distance so there wasn't that much distortion and it was like kind of a pleasing comfortable mm-hmm. image and then when she was freaking out a lot of her close-ups for the appendage stuff it was a 40 mil like way up in her face like the opening that's like the main shot of her in that opening um dining room scene with her family is when she's like looking like raw yeah. like you know dead up eyed yeah that was a 40 probably like maybe nine inches away from her face it was very close and uh props to hadley for putting up with me getting yeah, that close probably to her a lot of that. time at the time it was <laughs> yeah. you know it's t- it's tough because yeah you know you have to start acting to like tape marks on the map box and things once you start obstructing the view of other actors and she was a you know total pro about it, it was awesome um so, you know, we we went and starting to design those rules and also on a knowing, again, she wanted this to clearly be a straight, like a split horror comedy. We knew we couldn't get into too many like super long lens, like way super tight close-ups. There's two in the movie. Um, like the eye the, shots and stuff. The eye yeah. shots. And also there's one when she's washing her hands and it's actually one of my favorite shots. It's really simple, but she's washing her hands in the sink and we, we tilt up and reveal her looking at herself in the mirror. And that's when her eye twitches the first time. Yeah. And that was like one of the only times I used like a 125 for a close up in the whole film. Otherwise it was just for inserts. And it, you know, it's one of the more drum dramatic feeling. I'd say that's more akin to like Meadowlands than anything else in the film. And I think Anna knew going in because it was a comedy, she wanted to keep it more in like traditional comedic style frames, like a lot of medium close-ups, mm-hmm. not a lot of tight close-ups. And so mm-hmm. that was where the 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 lensing versus distance choices came into people was maintaining that. Um, and even then, like the the stuff with the appendage, we were kind of fighting a okay, well, we know how to keep it from going 
too drama, too horror. Like we know what those rules are. How do you go too stupid? Like what's too silly? Yeah. And and that was another thing where like, you know, if we went full, not 2013 Evil Dead, but like full original Evil Dead, yeah. a lot of what they would have done was probably get on a wider lens and get up in the face of one of these, like that was, you know, right. they, were on a, they were on like a 21 or something up in Ash's business for a lot of that movie. And it was yeah. so distorted and so silly. Literally attacking him with a camera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It felt so ridiculous. And so we were like, we can't do that either. And so a lot of the stuff with the appendage, we also stuck to our lensing rules where it was like, okay, well, if this is an appendage scene, we're probably on like the 40 mil and we'll treat it like coverage on the appendage. We're not going to treat it like a specialty horror shot. We're going to treat it like it's a scene, as a scene partner for her. And she's talking to this thing. And so that was how I think those scenes came about where it was like, we need to make sure even though you're aware it's a puppet and people are not used to puppets a lot of time, like a lot of people would have probably gone CG monster for this. Yeah. Another It's like, this got to feel like a character with her. And mm -hmm. so we always, you know, we always kept standard over the shoulder rules almost with it in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. No, it, it is. It's one of those things like, and, and it's a bold swing of a movie anyway, like, because there's some that like the minute they see that, but like they're either with it or not, you know, like there yeah. is, pe there's people that are gonna go, this doesn't look hyper real. Um, I was just talking, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. Cause we were watching, um, we were watching, uh, I think it was wizard of Oz. We were watching, um, but I was just like, I miss this very, I sound like Harry Styles. It's a movie. It feels like a movie, you know, but it's, a, <laughs> but I miss that, that theatrical feeling where it's like, it doesn't look real, but you're completely bought into this, this world and you're completely yeah. bought into these characters. And like with that movie, it's an extreme example. It's not even a fair comparison of, of what this movie style is, but just in terms of like, you don't need to buy into like, oh, this is really happening in mm -hmm. my world. It's like, is this really happening in these characters' world? And so I really liked it. And and there were a couple of reviews that were like, oh, it's like, it's like a basket case by way of, and then it mentioned like a modern, you know, a modern movie. Yeah. And and I like that. I like that very physical kind of creature. Um, as far as going into the effects, those tonally shift too, where you've got this creature that's like really kind of funny gross and then you go into this like i mean i don't even know how to explain it for someone who hasn't seen it but you you get this other version of it that's like extremely grotesque looks more realistic like working with the special effects people like how did you go about like showcasing their work to the best of your ability but also like ma managing like the way we shoot this is not how we're going to shoot this mm -hmm. next version of it or next iteration of it. Sure. Yeah. The, I would say that we called them stage one, two, and three, the appendages. That's a good way to do it. There you when, go. when we were shooting on say, yeah, we had to keep track of what day. I mean, we were shooting so out of order and like crazy, uh, crazy setups. And we, we can, and we yeah. can hit spoilers. If you're listening to this and you're to this point, just go watch the movie. Cause I want to be yeah. able to just talk about it. But, but, um, and yeah. I don't know how you'd listen to this without seeing it. Cause you'd sit there going, what? What is this going to yeah. do? So, but uh, anyway, three. <laughs> yeah, stage oh, no, three. Yeah. What does this become? Anyway. Yeah. So it, um, yeah. The the I would say the thing that really different, like the process that changed the most for us from the short to the film, the feature was actually that the little creature in the short had rods controlling its arms, and that meant mm -hmm. we do like a lot of lock off shots and things, and it kind of took the life out of. I think some of the scenes of it because the actress couldn't move around, we couldn't move around, right. and 
Anna and I struggled a bit with like, how do we make this thing feel alive when we have to like lock the camera? She can't move and it's going to like wiggle its arms through rods. Yeah. And because, you know, the second you get into handheld with, with rods, you got to paint them out and it becomes even more of a nightmare. And so um, we, on the feature, changed how that little, the first stage, the stage one worked. The stage one on the feature lost its arms. So when you watch it now, you'll see like the biggest difference besides its face looking a little <laughs> more maggot-esque in the feature is that right. like it's got little nubs now. And that was primarily huh. so that it could be strapped to her side and autonomous. And so she could run around and do whatever she wanted with this thing and like yell at it. We could go handheld. I could like I could whip between them if we wanted to. And there was yeah. no issue with like VFX cleanup getting in the way. Um, right. Also, in the short, all its mouth could do was go up and down. And the feature they get, they got like a little vocoder box that you could speak into it and they would track it would like match whoever was talking. Oh, okay. And so she could really like really act with the thing in the scene, you know, like it was able to speak at her from off screen if we wanted it to. And um, you know, it wasn't just like jabbing its jaw up and down. Um so yeah. the first one, that was that was a very fun change for us. And you know, it it just gave us more freedom to work with it. I would say it kind of changed how the scene felt. It it did it made it a little more visceral and i would say a li- it's it's still silly like it's when she lifts yeah. the shirt up it's like one of the best uh, festival moments we have when she lifts the shirt up and like people really have a great reaction to the the first stage um but it, it you know it kind of gave us room to be like this thing is really in the scene and that's why it kind of had the effect i think it does even to people mm. who are like but it's a puppet but it's still gross yeah. um it feels pretty real like you were kind of getting that earlier um, yeah and so when we got to stage two, that was a more in-depth process working with the puppeteers because, you know, this one, it needed four people to make it move. It had an right. arm, like a big fat armature, one a stick out of the back so that it could be like supported and walked, one for each arm, one for the legs, and then someone controlling the mouth. Um, and so that got a little more complex. You know, that was, again, one of the things where a lot of the film is is handheld so black black swan is a big influence for anna on this mm-hmm. but when we shot that puppet that one had to be on like on a slider or on sticks because whenever it moved there were so many rods and so many things happening with it that like if it was handheld and they tried to paint that out of the background it was going to be impossible yeah. so we locked you know the vfx artist and i we 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 worked to get the right height on it so i could get like a good slider height off like we would put it on the ground it was only four feet tall and so like to get the right height for that thing was actually a very interesting challenge just in our tiny little apartments because a lot of people would stick yeah. a crane or a dolly in there that could get the camera all the way to the ground right we're in real wilmington north carolina like one bedroom so these things are tiny they're right. not built for, for camera gear so yeah i was using simpler setups you know like slider and and dolly um to move with this thing and so we'd have you know we'd rehearse the motion it would walk towards us we get like the speaking rhythm right and then we'd go you know do a, a more full speed pass and eventually, once we'd gotten enough passes where it felt pretty good, because there were there's issues where like, you know, if you're just dragging it on the ground, sometimes it starts to dip or like it waves or like it doesn't yeah. look like it has any center of gravity to it. So that took a few passes. Then you pull it, pull it out of the shot. And we were able to, because I was on sticks, get a clean plate. And mm-hmm. so in post, they painted all the puppeteers out, all the rods out, everything. And it, right. You know, yeah. This little guy moving on its own. It was great. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. It's, it's just, it's funny. Like it's silly, but then like the shot um the shot where it's chained downstairs and eventually tricks her and he's like why do you keep me chained down here <laughs> you know yeah. and by that point in the movie you're like oh 
poor thing. Like, is this <laughs> like you get tricked with her? You're like, oh, this cute little disgusting puppet thing. Why is she doing this to him? Um, but it's fun because I think the puppet's sort of mature. You know what I mean? Yeah. As the film goes on, and, 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 it, and in terms of it matures the tone of the movie too. Like yeah, in realism and seriousness and gravity. Yes, and but, you know that stage three scene where she, like her crying out for her mom is like heartbreaking every time. It's really yeah. fucked up, and yeah. it's it's very interesting how the how on and Alex are able to gr- like gr- gradient the tone of the movie from the first stage puppet to the second to that, and you're like, oh, this is the same film. Yeah. How? I don't know, but like it is. And yeah. uh it's it's it by the time you get there, you are no longer laughing. That is really genuinely sad. And yeah. uh, it's freaky. Like that that scene where yeah. she's in bed after going to her parents and she's crying, and then you just see that crawl up behind it. You're like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know. Um for the stage in between those, so that would be yeah. stage three in the bed. So between stage two and three, there's one of my favorite shots in the movie and favorite moments in the movie is when you realize that she's been duped and all of a sudden, you know, I forget what the appendage says, but you know, finally or or whatever. And the, and then you see the shadow shot on the wall where it kind of like grows into the next form, um, which I love stuff like that, where you don't see it, you know, but you see it kind of thing. Um, Was that a practical shadow or was that something that was like a visual effects like they drew it like a transformation like how did they go about doing that i will say it's it's yes yes and no yes um it's so uh anna alex and i had done the opening video for slam dance about three years ago and three years ago it doesn't matter anyway it's one where basically this little girl grows into a giant bodybuilder with a little girl's head comped onto it and so we've done a version of that effect in the past where like we tried it on that one and it was basically we took a plate of the garage and yeah, they sort of just stuck the, like they used a mat and just made a shadow on it yeah. and it didn't quite sell. Cause the thing that's different between when you like, when you do post shadow on something and we do real shadow on something, specular highlights disappear. So like everything that makes like a, a surface shiny, you know, like when you're looking at painted brick, yeah. if you have, a real light on it, you're going to see the shimmer of the paint. When a shadow crosses it, it becomes dull. When you do a post shadow on something shimmery, you just bring down the values, but like the shimmer is still there. And so yeah. it doesn't really sell. And we learned that lesson on that last one. So what we did was we shot in the basement, two plates of the wall, one where there was a, uh, the light casting on it. And then one where he blocked the front light that was casting. So we had a shadow plate and a lit plate. Mm. And so in post, what happened was, when we got back to LA, they've been cutting the movie. Anna and Alex shot, I think it was Anna herself doing like this rising motion in the garage of like a straight flat plate um, as well. And then they used that um, as a mat for the shadow wall. And so they literally masked out the shadow and then stuck that over the lit wall. So it literally, it's as close to a real shadow as you can get because it was right. technically, it's, it's obstructing the light in that case. And so it was a really weird mix of like three different, elements that had to come together because if you just took the shot of anna doing the thing and just made it a black mask and stuck that on that lit wall it would just look like a weird dark like like it would look like almost image artifact it was like it wouldn't look really real the trick was really getting an actual non-lit wall to come through and that's you know how it meshed together so well 
Right. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. And something that only a cinematographer would think about is like the values of this uh, light <laughs> reflecting, you know, don't look quite the same. And it is something that's funny because, you know, there is so much in this film that's like feels old school in terms of how it's achieved. Like it feels, you know, like you mentioned the fly, what you're talking about, you know, I've been watching through all the universal uh, horror movies for the last, you know, last couple of weeks and uh, re-watching some, watching some for the first time. And it's those same kind of in-camera tricks where it's like, you can see they added a shadow or like you can see um, these really creative ways that they did these effects without really being able to show you, you know, this like this really cool transformation. There's a lot of use your imagination in those, in those films, but they did it in these creative ways where it's like it is through a shadow or it is through i mean the invisible man i just rewatched recently and it's like there's so many things in that that still to this day you're like that's such creative storytelling beyond just the effects are still hold up in a lot of ways but then beyond that there's like these little things they do these footprints here or these little moments of smoke here that just blow your mind um but, I mean, I got yeah. I got a shout out. So I, you know, I, we kind of talked earlier about my my interest in VFX. Yeah. And like I I shoot a lot of green screen and and a lot of VFX based stuff. This movie is a really good, I would say, mixture of the two. Even if you don't realize it on the surface, like there's yeah. a lot of VFX hiding behind a lot of the practical effects. And the the shout out goes to a uh, I don't know if you watched the quarter digital the VFX artist react series. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. you know you would uh they drop so much good knowledge that's practical for filmmakers and that yeah. the way they break stuff they don't even they don't even just break stuff down they explain all the elements that go into what they're doing on their end to get the vfx that you know sometimes you can't just tell by watching a vfx breakdown of something and so right. i religiously watch those because those uh, like you know i've learned so much about how to shoot vfx on set just from watching that stuff and so you know i me on my own i understand how like light works but to consider giving two plates like a lit and a yeah. non-lit one that's something that, you know, I think I have to give credit for, you know, I just learned so much watching their stuff that, uh, you know, I would suggest if you're a, a DP or director about to embark on VFX, watch as many of those as you can, because you'll learn a lot. Yeah. No, I love, I love watching their stuff. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated too, because you're, sometimes there's a split between the, um, I would say the DP world and say the vfx world or the practical makeup world is for sure and the visual effects world um to where the guys on set with the camera are like i want to get it for real i want to shoot this for real let's do this for real and then there's like this clash between departments of like vfx is like well we don't even have what we need and now we have to fix this because there wasn't this the things that you mentioned thinking about they're not being thought about you know it's just like here fix this in post you know like that's like the the approach um, so it's really cool to hear that you've got like a respect for both regions of work, I guess. Um, approaching, the, I want to ask you this before I ask you the questions, I ask everybody that comes on the show. Um, but this is something that's just come up quite a bit um, as I've done this. And it's something that I've been trying to figure out is, you know, you're a team of incredibly talented people. Um, we haven't even talked about the music of the movie, which is I mean, the score so good. is so, so good. So good. <laughs> like that was probably my favorite. I mean, that was one of my favorite elements of the movie was the music and the way that ratchets up. Um, but, you know, you got a team of talented people. You've got talented VFX people working on this. You've got talented, you know, creature makers and 
you know, you've got a talented cinematographer and a director and all these different pieces and each are talented in their own right. And so the question that's been coming up a lot as I talk to creators is when it comes to working in a team environment, how do you balance letting your own talents and abilities shine while also being part of a collective unit? It's funny talking about that with a movie like mm-hmm. Appendage, but working in sort of a symbiotic relationship, like how do you maintain like not cutting away people's talents while also not bolstering one person's talents more than everybody else? How do you how do you balance those things? You know, as much as I think I would like to be able to take credit for all of that, I think a lot of it goes to a producer and a director choosing mm-hmm like making smart choices when they hire the crew they do. I think it goes beyond artistic talent. I think it goes to who each person is. I think it takes balancing knowing who each person is and how they might interact with someone else when they're being hired for it. And so, you know, we have the benefit of we've known each other for 10 years and we've all worked together for yeah. 10 years. So that that helps. And we, we now know each other's quirks. We all set each other up once or twice. It happens because, you know, when you've got a lot of passionate artistic people in a room together, passionate usually also means a little spicy or it means a little like particular or perhaps um neurotic or you know very very tunnel visioned on your own work it just happens especially a little appendage in your ear saying they're gonna fuck up the movie you know and you're going when when you're into time crunch you're like i gotta do my job right now as best as i can you kind of like you know it's easy to easy to shut things out and just hyper focus on getting your part of it Mm -hmm. done right and so good amount of credit goes to choosing the right crew before anything um and knowing how personalities will clash or not clash but i think it it really it does come down to just doing this over time i mean when you start when you start you don't you don't realize just how much your how you handle talking to other people might affect how they're able to do their job you know, you you think I'm there to do my job and I want, I want to show off. And like when you're young and you're like yeah. trying to do cool stuff and like make stuff look cool. Like you don't think about like, well, if I put a light there, the actor literally can't walk there anymore. You know, like yeah. it's, it becomes, or like if I put diff there, like, are they trapped in a little like one foot box of a frame sure. that can't move? And it's still easy to get carried away and like try and make something look exactly like you want it and forget that, you know, the whole thing is a team effort down to like how you what you freedom you give the actors and right and i think one of the things that's really beneficial is knowing not only your director and how they're going to want the actors to be able to move but you know to being able to talk with pd and, and and learning specifically like i know i need this side of the room looking good we have a lot of hero angles this way like a lot of people might not bring that up. They're like, oh, that's interesting. We have a lot of shots looking this way. And they'd like laugh at it with the director and never think about bringing it up with the PD. It's like, if you want to know, like, this is the hero angle for the opening scene. This is the second right. one. Like, these two today, like, if you are so overwhelmed and you can't finish building out the set, like, on day one, here's where I'm looking. And, like, right. take your time while we're shooting that to finish that stuff. And, you know, it, that's only doable when you also have a good relationship with your director and know, like, they're not going to throw a curveball and suddenly, like, hey, let's right. flip and look over there now. Um, and so you all have to be on the same page. But, you know, it's funny. It just comes down to just talk a lot. Yeah. You know, like, just communicate. Communicate about stuff you don't think anyone even gives a shit about. Communicate about right. things that, like, 
maybe you think someone might not be interested in, but like, I'm going to use this kind of light here because I think it'll be cool. And the PD is like, oh, that is cool. I should build something in that'll like refract that light. They wouldn't have done that if you hadn't brought up your dumb fucking right. light in the ceiling. But like, you might, if you don't yeah. do it, they, they'll never know. And then, you know, I think if you're not working with a bunch of people who are very excited about what everyone is doing, it's going to not work out too well. Like everyone yeah. should be their own nerd, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that's a, a vital part of the process. Yeah. No, I, I want to get your thoughts on it. Cause that's something that just keeps coming up is like, cause I, you know, I, my, my career has been so much where I've been solo, you know, it's been like videography and like, we've done a couple of things where there's like a little collaboration here and there, or like, you know, uh, recently we did something where it was like the most people that I've had, like all working on something. And it is, it's a big jump because you're going like, oh, I picked them because they're so good at their thing. And then it's like that balance between like, I don't want to handcuff them by like putting them under my vision or under someone, you know, but then also if everybody's doing their own thing, you know, I mean, we've watched enough zombie movies to know when everyone's out for their own survival, everyone dies, you know? So, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I love that answer. Um, I know we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you some questions. I ask everybody that comes on the show. Uh, sure. So it's kind of slightly rapid fire, but we'll see uh, how Let's rapid it. it goes. But um, first and foremost, if you had to program a double feature with appendage, uh, what would you pick and why? Oh, that's an awesome question that no one's asked me yet. So give me one sec. Let me think about this. Um, ooh. There's so many fun choices. You know, part of me wants to go with the obvious one and be like, an appendage the fly double feature would actually be pretty fun. I'm like, what would be a funny one that would you wouldn't expect? You know, <laughs> I'd like part of you like, would face off be interesting? Cause like it's not exactly a clone situation, but it's a switching places situation. Right. You know, I'm like, huh. That would be totally also a very weird one. I I hadn't thought about that weirdly. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, where that even came a from. Little freaky but, Friday in there, you know, maybe. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I think what I would, if I, I, I don't know if I'm going to find the movie while we're on this call, but the idea I think would be to find one that is not necessarily a clone takeover, but a switching places because the same loss of your life is very like, you know, someone else taking over your life is still right. rough. Um and interesting you know in some ways my partner's like would ex machina be interesting because you know that's not necessarily about someone losing their own life but it is about someone's for lack of a better term their own creation or monster sort of finding itself and taking over and becoming its own thing yeah. like the ending of ex machina you know the 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 robot escapes into real life and becomes uh a, a an, an invisible part of real life and like you know to know it's a robot and like i'm like man hannah losing her life to this appendage and then it just taking over and she you know no one knows yeah. who's gonna know no one's gonna know right. like that's totally very different movies also but i'm like yeah i think that's what i, I like weird double features i like double features that right. are connected and you have to put the pieces together why they're yeah. connected. instead so, of the same kind of movie exactly twice yeah because yeah. like the obvious answer is like appendage in the brood appendage in the fly yeah like appendage in basket case and like 
Yes, there might be some value to actually. Okay, Pendant and Malignant would be a very entertaining double feature. That would be a great double feature. Would be we get. Sl- I don't know why people have taken to slamming this movie in, in review in the negative reviews. They're like, right. "Well, Malignant did it better," and it's like these are just very. That's like comparing like Hereditary and Evil Dead. Like, why? Why are you see, even? To- I could see if you heard the concept, like, like when when it first appeared on your side, because I didn't know where the movie yeah. was going to go. I was like oh, this is going to be like, it's going to slowly make her start doing things. But that's not yeah. what the movie is. Like, Malignant yeah. is not, maybe like the first 10 minutes, but even tonally, it's so different. Like, Malignant's going for that super gothic, over-the-top horror. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's just and two very all, different movies. It's also on like a studio level, you know? And I, I feel like people yeah. are understanding that Appendage, while it was released on Hulu, was produced at at an indie level like it was yeah. produced as an indie it was shot as an indie and maybe we have a couple good tricks up wrestling to make it look not that way between yeah. the puppet and kind of how we did it but there's a 30 something million dollar gap you don't have a james Wan uh, budget yeah yeah and and it's so it's very interesting to see people like draw a connection it's kind of flattering honestly to be like oh appendage my direct thought is malignant I'm like damn that means we did a pretty solid <laughs> job again <laughs> right can we put <laughs> that on the like poster yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not That's as good awesome. as malignant but like you know yeah. Inter- interesting. Like, I, I, you know, I appreciate that that's the connection that gets drawn. Sorry, back that's to awesome. your rapid fire question. No worries. This always happens. So we'll, we'll, keep, yeah. we'll keep going. We're in this together. Yeah. Um, which of your projects do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Um, mm. Mm. You know, I've, I've got. One movie that I made that it's the it's the it's the smallest movie I ever made. It was a seven thousand dollar iPhone road trip movie called Threshold, and it released on Arrow. And you know, as far as it being a DP, let alone co-directing it, like as far as being a DP on that, you know, it's kind of a nightmare scenario in a lot of ways. Like iPhone, no lights, road trip, seven grand, no crew, nothing. Like it's just what it's going to be. And it was a it was definitely a surrender yourself to the process kind of thing. Like it was all improv. We didn't have a script. Um, we had an outline. And mm-hmm. so we shot it over 11 days, shot it chronologically and the characters and the story, like we knew where it kind of needed to go, but like, you know, between all the prep and backstory work we did with them and them finding the characters as we shot, it kind of came together in a wonderful way. Movies don't normally get to do. You never get to shoot chronologically. You don't get to every day reassess what the movie means and rewrite it as you go to like fit how the characters are treating each other. And so that was just such a unique, interesting process. And like, you know, on the surface, it's, it's a weird one to bring up because it was so cheap and it was such a small film in a lot of ways, but like resonated with a lot of people because it, it, you know, the characters would drive it and it is, it's the same kind of thing as appendage, a mixed tone. It's mostly a brother, sister drama with like horror sprinkled throughout. Um, And the ending's insane. And so it was enough horror that like, arrow pick was comfortable picking it up but um getting forced out of your comfort zone is really fun sometimes and yeah. that's kind of what appendage did too i i do typically come from shooting more strictly serious sad things yeah. and so um being forced to do not forced but being like <laughs> very willingly did appendage but being made to not just shoot heavy sad dramatic intense mm-hmm. and like have to think what does my 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 outlook on things mean when applied to comedy in some ways was like a very interesting new thing and so yeah. you know that's that's the, i guess the long answer 
Speaking <laughs> speaking of new things, if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Uh so they just did it. Um <laughs> but uh Hellraiser, I had you know, me and uh, me and uh, my my producing and writing partner, uh we had a we had a fun pitch for an, an, a Hellraiser movie. And hmm. it was, very, it was very different. It was sort of based, you know, I think when you do something like Hellraiser now, and I understand the inclination to need to like, sort of uh, explain sort of the mythology to people who haven't watched it before, because you know, a lot of people tuning in, haven't seen the movie, the new one in to me, in some ways, I, I, I love that directing DP team. I think they're fucking phenomenal. And like, I've, yeah. I, I've learned so much from them, but like, I think, you know, there was sort of a approaching it as if no one had seen a Hellraiser movie before view to it. We're like, it was the character introduced, like we'd never seen the hell priest. We'd never seen the bot. Well, look at this thing we don't know. And I'd be like, I I think that kind of fought some of the success of the movie. It's like, why hide any of it at this point? Like we are in this world. There've been like eight of these. It's like like Spider-Man. We don't need to see uncle Ben die. You know? And So to me, I wanted to do a, yeah, a a version where like that was all out there already. This was like adding to the mythology in a new way. That was kind of what I I was hoping to, you know, it was, that was what we'd wanted to do, obviously with there being a reboot now probably won't be another one for a while, but, uh, I don't no. know. It is Hellraiser. They crank those out. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, let's see. What do you think is the best decade of film history? Oh. Uh, that's that is tough. Um, so you know, there was. There's the stretch of like one of my favorite movies of all time is like is seven. You know, I love seven. And then I, I think if you go had 10 years, shame is another, I think shame was like early 2000s. The right? fast bender. Yeah. That was 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Like mid range 95 to 2005 as some of my favorite, you know, cause that, that was still when mid range dramas and, and thrillers yeah. were happening. It was when, you know, you were allowed to make it still like that weird 20 million or $30 million, like, you yeah. know, crime thing or, or a, yeah. So I, I like that era for that. I, you know, shame it hits me every time I I've taken so much of my cinematography language from how that movie mm. shot. Um, again, why appendage was a fun one to try and break my brain on because I'm usually right. a little sadder than that. Um, but I'm a huge, like, or like, I love eighties horror, like early, yeah. early lady, like, you know, maybe tail end of the seventies through like late eighties horror, I think is 77 to 87, maybe or like 74 to 84. Yeah great period of time yeah. um, so those, those i would i would have to battle between those two decades which would be my favorite yeah love that um i'll skip here to my last question what do you think is the best piece of advice that an aspiring filmmaker should hear well, you know what i got a good answer for this i just had to write it somewhere else and <laughs> i i've never had good advice but i just put it into words perfect um, you're never going to shoot the same thing twice. Like there you'll step onto a lot of sets and you'll shoot similar things, but you're never going to shoot the scene you're shooting now, unless it's like a Marvel movie and you're doing a reshoot because they added something to the story. Like you're never going to shoot literally the same scene again. And so I guess even in that case, you're still not doing it. There will never be the same sort of the same crew surrounding it, the same emotional intent going in. Everyone's not invested in the same way. 
the actual content of the scene you're never going to do again. And so it's really easy to get caught up on a feature, especially a low budget feature and be so stressed. You lose track of what you're actually getting to do. And you, you're so worried about so many elements and it's your first one for like a streamer, a studio. And you're like, Oh God, I got to be so impressive. I can't just like take the time, do what I do best on a scene and also enjoy it. And like, you know, the, it's easier when you're doing something like appendage with ridiculous puppetry in it. Cause like it is constantly sobering and constantly a reminder of like this, the room you're in when you like you're holding a camera, you're lighting all the shit and you look and there's this little fucking thing on the floor and it is talking in a weird voice and it is gross and it's covered in slime. And you're like, Oh, right. This is the, this is where I am in time right now. This is like the right. moment I'm in. And, uh, it'll kind of calm you down and bring you back to like, maybe it sucks maybe this like it's maybe the day is like your worst day on set ever it's the hardest day you've ever had but like look what your job is like today right. this is your job this is awesome like you yeah. got you have to bring yourself back around to those moments and otherwise it's so easy to get caught up in all the the you know the stress of it all right love that answer and love this interview pal thank you so much for joining me on today's show and for anybody who wants to follow you and see what you're working on next what's the best way for them to do that uh, check out, uh, you know, website and Instagram. So powellsrobinson.com and, uh, my Instagram is just my name, Powell underscore Robinson, uh, usually pretty up to date on both of those things. So awesome. I'm going to go follow you right now and, uh, hope we talk again in the near future. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the film school podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe. So you won't miss a single episode.